Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is George Skopsov, president and CEO of HQuest Vanguard, Inc., who spent more than a decade executing and leading development of breakthrough automation and robotics technologies for the energy and mining sectors. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today, we are here with George from 8Quest Vanguard, a really interesting company that's changing how we produce hydrogen. Welcome, George. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. Excited to uh, tell you about our company and this big, very big problems that uh, we're solving. Yeah, let's start telling people a little bit about what exactly you guys do. Well, our mission is to enable broad, non-disruptive industrial decarbonization. Okay, and I mean, that's not very specific, right? Maybe let me take a step back and basically tell you about what big problem we're solving, right? And the obvious challenge facing all of us right now is the climate change. And um, the root causes of the climate change are pervasive. Right and the infrastructure that supports our lifestyle, and um, any solution there is not a single solution that can address climate change. Right, but any solution that can address climate change must be first and foremost economically attractive. Right. Yeah. And uh, there are multiple trends that have basically that take the root really in the 19th century industrial revolution that brought us to you know to this point. Right, and uh, it's fundamentally the roots of climate change are in trying to get the lowest cost production of you know anything that you see around you right through things like economies of scale centralization of production and use of the abundant cheap scalable energy sources which turned out to be fossil fuels right and you know first the industrial revolution was driven by coal Right, and then coal yeah. was displaced by oil, and then ultimately it was displaced by more relatively recently natural gas. Right, and natural yeah. gas is very big now, as we all know from our sort of uh, <laughs> yeah. news news sources. Right. Yeah. So the question is, how do you you know how do you address this problem of uh, using fossil fuels and uh, putting all this carbon into the you know into the air? And that's what we're trying to address. And fundamentally, we're decarbonizing the way you can input energy into basically chemical processes, right? And the chemical processes are the ones that are driving, basically supporting our lifestyle, right? If you look at the industrial emissions, the largest sectors that are responsible for the industrial emissions are still making, right? And which you see still yeah. all, all around you, you know, fertilizer production, you know, people can't eat without fertilizers, plastics, you know, etc. And a lot of the CO2 emissions come not just, you know, from the burning of fossil energy to drive the chemical processes, but also from the chemical processes that involve carbon itself. And we have a technology that can that can address all of these problems at a very fundamental level. So we have like the pollution being generated by using natural gas and oil to produce energy, but the chemical process themselves that we use to produce also generate carbon emissions even without taking into account the energy. So it's it's a problem with the way we we process 
chemically stuff, not only the energy necessary to do that. This is correct? Uh, right. So, for example, steel, right? Like, or aluminum, right? How, um, you know, the way you get steel, the way you get to steel, right, is first you have to dig ore out of the ground, which is basically rock, right? And the yeah. uh, iron in that rock is bound to oxygen, okay? So you have to pull that oxygen off. How do you do it? A, you have to heat it, right, to pretty high temperatures. B, you have to get another chemical, right, uh, another compound which will react with that oxygen and pull it off of, off of the iron. And the cheapest way to do it is, of course, to use carbon, right? And that's what steelmaking is all about. You put coal or coal, yeah. right, metallurgical coke into it, and there is a and the reaction that happens generates both heat, right, to drive the reactions, and the carbon pulls off oxygen from the ore and escapes as CO two. A very similar concept in um, aluminum uh, production, right? Okay. Even though even though it is electrically driven, you are spending you're you're spending basically carbon electrodes to pull off oxygen off of the aluminum ore. So your technology allows to do this type of process without using carbon to make it. So let's let's talk about ways to decarbonize industry, right? One okay. of them is well, let's like the the inputs into the energy inputs into these processes. Can we decarbonize them? Right. Instead of burning natural gas or oil or coal, yeah. how can we get heat otherwise to drive them? And uh, you know there are two answers that people have proposed, right? That are uh, viable, you know, technologically okay. and viable. One is to use hydrogen, right? Okay, why don't we just burn hydrogen, you know, instead of natural gas? That makes okay. sense. Right? Yeah. The other way is, well, if we have renewable electricity, why don't we apply electricity and just heat everything electrically, right? Because like, you have electric heaters, you know, at home. Yeah. Why can't we use it at industrial scale? And the answer is, yes, you can. But there are some fundamental problems with this, right? And they end up being, problem is an economic viability. The reason people use fossil energy, right, to deliver heat is because it's extremely cheap, right? And they produce electricity, right, using fossil energy because it's extremely cheap, right? So whenever you introduce electricity to heat it, that becomes much more expensive, typically, right? Unless you have a way to make the whole process even more efficient right? Like fundamentally efficient, more efficient, where the electricity that goes in does a lot more work. Okay. And that's called process intensification. Okay. And that gets to actually another problem that, you know, the present world is must resolve, which is, you know, something you can refer to it as supply chain resilience. Okay. And, um, you know, it has a lot of people have become, I guess, aware of problems with the logistics yeah. and supply chains, right? Over the last two yeah. years, first with yes. COVID and now with the, you know, bigger disruptions that we're hearing about in yeah. the news. And it comes back to the, you know, this 19th, early 20th century trends, right? In centralization of production. Basically make it bigger. You exploit economies of scale, make one big thing centralized somewhere in one spot, right? So you can make it much cheaper. And the problem is... If that place where, you know, your single centralized, very large, very cheap to produce on unit basis plant, if that region, I don't know, gets disrupted by pandemic or war, yeah. right, now you are kind of out of luck, 
right? Because you don't have any redundancy and any resilience. Yeah, but to build the, that resilience will mean that you lose a lot of efficiency in the process, right? Not necessarily. So that's where technology comes in, right? So now, you know, we, I mean, 200 years have passed, right? Since, you know, yeah. we started burning coal to drive the industrial revolution. So you would think that, hey, we have, you know, learned something over the last 200 years. We might made some technological progress, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the technologies such as the one that we have developed allow you to reduce the scale of uh, chemical production right, significantly, right, without incurring the same hit in, you know, basically cost, right? You want to make things bigger traditionally or traditional yeah. chemical because the bigger you make things, the less you pay on sort of unit basis, right? Your marginal cost decreases. That's called economies of scale, right? There is another type of economies of scale, which is economies of mass production, right? So if you can encapsulate your chemical production in a module, right? Instead of making building a very large plant costing ten billion dollars, right? You can build you can build ten thousand of smaller plants, right? Yeah. Costing maybe like maybe together they all cost the same ten billion dollars. Maybe they but cost then- even more, even less because you're actually able to manufacture them, right? You don't need to bring, you know, three thousand highly skilled welders. Once and you can and you can day. distribute it as well, right? I think that, precisely. Yeah. And, I think this makes that, a lot of sense. A lot of countries will move their supply chain a little bit to be more distributed. The reliance alone is it's 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 enough. It's a reason enough for at least to have some ways to build things in house. Because I don't think that moving forward, any nation would want to be that dependent on the global supply chain anymore. The way things can be disrupted is, was just impossible to maintain your own supply chain 100% dependent on the, the global one. I think this makes a lot of sense. But the question is, can we do it in a in a cost-effective way? Like what, what types of technology we would be using to make this at least as effective as building like big plants and centralizing it in one place and just shipping everything through containers? Right. That's an excellent, uh, that's an excellent question. Right, and uh, there are emerging technologies to help with this that allow you to miniaturize your production by increasing, the, for example, the rates of your of your processes. All right. Um, so, for example, a big revolution in uh, the big in the first half of the 20th century, right, that really drove a lot of developments in the chemical industry, petrochemical industry, was catalysis. Right. People have realized that you can put these chemicals, right? Essentially chemicals that don't participate in the reaction itself. They're not getting spent in the reaction, but they change the rate of the reaction. And that has been a big step up, right? So, you know, can we develop new solutions along that path, right? That can, you know, give us another step up in efficiencies and reduce and reducing costs. So for example, what we have developed at HQuest is a way to electrify chemical processes. Basically, we can deliver electric energy at, a, at very high rates into uh, basically gases, few, uh, liquids, and solids in a way that uh, people haven't really done before. And we, use, we do it using microwaves. Okay. And I can... So give me an example of a process that you guys would be able to, to use this technology. Like what's your biggest... Um, 
first example, let's say, or your proof of concept? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it actually the, our best developed concept is the biggest, I think, market. You know, there is right? the biggest emerging market, which is uh, uh, really we can we can deliver zero CO two hydrogen using this process, using four times less energy, electric energy, than the you know electrolysis uh, solutions. Basically, it takes four times less energy to pull hydrogen out of natural gas than it does to pull it from uh, from water. Okay, so it natural gas. It's primarily methane, which is the simplest hydrocarbon there is. Basically, it's a single carbon and it has four hydrogen atoms, right? So it has a lot okay. of hydrogen. Yeah. Makes sense. You want to you want to pull that off. off. The problem, so and you know, hydrocarbon cracking is basically pervasive, right? In the chemical industry, in the oil refining, the way we get our plastics is by heating larger hydrocarbons like ethane or lighter uh, petroleum products to very high temperatures yeah. or com- comparatively high temperatures in for conventional chemical engineering, 700 Celsius, 800 Celsius, which is where... Just one thing. Nowadays, what they use to make that hydrogen, like they are pulling it out of water or, or from gas. And if they are doing it oh. with gas, how they how they heat it nowadays? Since you can oh, do it like four times. Oh, that's, that's, actually, that's, that's actually a great question. The way industrial hydrogen is made right now is both from natural gas and water. Okay. okay. So the way it's done is the water is boiled. You make steam. You mix the steam with natural gas. You run it through a very high, again, a furnace, essentially. Yeah. Tubes going through a furnace, which is, again, powered with natural gas, a fossil fuel, right? And you... Yeah. Uh, and there is a reaction that happens where you get hydrogen and in the end carbon dioxide. Okay. okay. That's so you're converting, you're converting both methane and water into, into hydrogen and carbon dioxide. So it's a very CO2 intensive process. It's, it makes sense to do at large scales again, right? It's not portable. It's not modular. You're making about 10 kilograms of CO2 for every kilogram of hydrogen. That's a lot of pollution. Exactly. And the direct way of dealing with it, right, is to capture the CO2 and put it somewhere else. And the problem is there aren't that many places where you can actually put the CO2 underground. I mean, it's a gas, right? Yeah. Okay. So the the other alternative to that is, okay, we can make hydrogen. just, just Just one thing, like, so if there's so much CO2 being generated by this process, even though if we use the hydrogen instead of burning things like oil to actually not create pollution, we'll be creating it just in a different, in a different step of the supply chain, actually. That's, 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 that's exactly right. And this is why, so there are different hydrogens, right? And some people find it helpful to think about hydrogen, basically give it different colors. Okay. okay, so the hydrogen that was made in the process that I just described, it's called gray hydrogen. Okay, you, yeah. it makes CO2. There are actually even worse ways of making hydrogen than what I just described. You can use coal to make, yeah. you know, in a similar process to make it, um, and that's black and brown hydrogen. And the electrolysis hydrogen, as long as the electricity inputs into that process are non-fossil, right? Like they can be from hydro, they can be from solar, they can be from nuclear. That's considered green hydrogen, okay? But there is a new way 
of making that hydrogen. Basically, we some people call it turquoise hydrogen, okay. right? Which is to take the to take methane and to heat it very to high temperatures. As I described, people are doing it right now with uh, other larger hydrocarbons to make to make chemicals. The problem with that approach is methane is much more stable. It requires much higher temperatures to to actually break down. Okay. And so that's why conventional processes don't work don't work very well. And this is where our approach shines because we can focus our microwave field in a, in a, essentially in a pipe where methane is passing and uh, heat it within fractions of a second to temperatures greater than a thousand degrees Celsius. I can literally press a button. We have a, a laboratory system. I can literally press a button and we'll get the reaction going immediately. There is no, and this is something that blows chemical engineers mind, right? If his has conventional thinking, how do you transfer heat into a you know stream of gas? It's always contact, right? You have to have yeah. a you have to heat the walls of the pipe, and then the yeah. pipe heats. The, we're doing it. We're not heating the walls of the pipe. We're creating basically. Oh. This. We transfer Straight the energy it, yeah. directly into the gas volumetrically, right? Oh. Which is a huge step up in rates of heating. Yeah. Right, yeah. which translates into, you know, everything else. Um, we can so when you look at the costs of our uh, probably there is less less loss as well, right? Because if you don't need to heat the pipe or heat anything to transfer, you be more efficient in the whole process because there will be uh, less loss of. There's always loss if you need to transfer through, like heating the pipe first and then. Yeah, that's the, that's right. Um, that's right, and we can, but. The key thing is we can achieve those temperatures much at, at much higher temperatures than is available than than you could do by burning, you know, something by burning that methane. Oh, I see. Um, I see. We can we can get to much higher temperatures and very very quickly, literally in fractions of a second. Okay, and that basically helps us eliminate a lot of cost, right? Like you said, it's yeah. more efficient. Well, yeah, and we don't need to use. Exotic alloys that have to withstand high temperatures. Oh yeah, true. Like, as well, yeah. Like, like uh, things that uh, basically, uh, you know, nickel alloys that cost forty dollars, you know, a pound. We don't need to do that. Like everything in our lab is stainless steel and aluminum. But what about the energy that that you need to actually make the the microwave field? Like how how it compares to the electrolysis process or other or the other processes you talk about of making hydrogen? Right, so you can't really compare one to one electric energy inputs with you know heat with combustion heat, right? Because uh, it's different. You can generate electricity in different ways. You can generate it from heat as well, in which case it becomes a lot less efficient than using heat directly, right? If you're getting to the same temperatures, but in our in our you know in our case we actually need to be at much higher performance levels than is achievable with regular heat compared to electrolysis as i mentioned we're four times we're using four times less electricity and that's a big deal yeah okay and um finally you know the you know one of the questions you might ask is hey what happens to the carbon in methane right it's a hydrocarbon 
one atom of carbon and four atoms yeah. of hydrogen. We understand what happens to the hydrogen, right? It becomes yeah. a gas and we can use it somewhere else. What happens to the carbon? And that's the another uh, very big advantage of our technology is that we can tune the process, we can tune where that carbon ends up and in what form we can actually extract it. So there is another industrial material, which is pervasive, right? It's in everything you touch on a daily basis, from lithium-ion battery in your, in your phone to the tires of your car. It's like 30% of the weight of your tire is actually this material. It's called carbon black, right? And right now it's made something like 15 million metric tons are made around the world. And they're made in a fundamentally non-sustainable process. Okay, they use residual products, byproducts, waste products from uh, coal, uh, um, metallurgical coal coking plants, and from refineries. Yeah, and they uh, they run those uh, those materials through a furnace, which is power again, which is heated with natural gas. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, direct and indirect emissions, you know, in making that product. Our process can actually make that product using only electric energy inputs and without any CO2 emissions. So automatically we're making a sustainable carbon black product, which as is... A, as a byproduct of the production of the hydrogen as well. Correct. But you, as I like to think about it as a co-product. Co-product. Right? So yeah, it's interesting. Exactly, yeah. As a co-product. And here's, and here's the best thing, right? We can, we can sell our modules, our units, let's say to a carbon black company and tell them, hey, uh, this will make carbon black in a fundamentally sustainable way. And you can tune it to be this, you know, that carbon black to be the same as you have been making with these, uh, with these non-sustainable processes. And you can plug it in directly into your existing plant, right? You don't have, the idea is you don't have to eliminate all the, you know, capital expense that, yeah. you know, people have, you know, basically made those investments have been made over, you know, decades, right? You don't, you don't need to disrupt that entire industry. You don't need to lose the value, right? You just need to replace one component. And all of a sudden, you're using natural gas that you already have been using, but in a fundamentally uh, sustainable way. So could, could you plug, plug it in the, in the factories and companies that are doing hydrogen today as well? Correct. In that case, your product is hydrogen, yeah. right? But you need to pull off that carbon and you have to do something with that carbon. So there's going to be a market for it because the carbon that is being produced from that natural gas is what they call high structure, which yeah. means that it has a, you can use it as to replace carbon black. It also has very high purity, right? There are no metals in it because we don't use catalysts for our process. You don't have to purify it. It's as pure as the natural gas that has been going in. How, um, how, so there are a lot of advantages. How you would compare, like, uh, cost-wise, let's say, producing hydrogen with this technology, like the total cost comparing to the more traditional methods? And second, how does cost change if you take into account that you can sell the co-product as well, because this changed the, the, the cost structure a lot. So it's exactly. two, two different corporations. Exactly. And that's a great question, right? And if 
we do not, if we ignore the carbon co-product, okay, we can be, we are uh, competitive or more than competitive with the, with the conventional carbon, you know, which uses uh, steam to, uh, and, and, and natural gas to create hydrogen. As long as they pull that CO2 and do something with it, right? That has an extra cost. So we're competitive with that out of the gate. As soon as you start assigning value to the carbon, you know, that, that, that we're pulling off, essentially our, our hydrogen becomes free. Okay, we can generate all that hydrogen with zero CO2 emissions and give it away because the carbon has much higher value. And you can just sell the carbon. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And so and so that's our value proposition, for example, to the existing carbon black manufacturers. Right? You can yeah. just buy our equipment, run it, you, you will get the carbon black that, that you can sell. And you can decarbonize because you have a stream of hydrogen. You can decarbonize existing production of the conventional carbon block without any interruption. Oh, I see. So they, they would use the hydrogen they are producing to heat the traditional way they were doing it. Exactly. So well. that gives them a ramp. Right? Yeah, what, a we, big, what we big want big to group. avoid, what we want to avoid is disruption of the industries. We want to give the existing industry tools for them to become sustainable in an economically viable way without yeah. large disruptions. Yeah, this will make the sell easier for a guy that has like already invested like billions of dollars in a big plant. And then you can just, you can, you are actually, you are improving what's already there from day one without necessarily like changing everything or ramping up everything. So it's a good value exactly. prop for. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, let's say carbon black is only made in a couple of places around the world, right? This approach allows you to build, start building a carbon black plant from scratch anywhere. And you can immediately start selling your decarbonized natural gas or hydrogen, right? To, a, to some local uh, consumers while building up your carbon black production from, you know, from scratch. Talking about costs of like, or substituting in all those processes that we need heat, like we were saying earlier, like oil and gas, to use hydrogen instead, how much we would need to make the hydrogen cost less in order to like, what's the cost today of using hydrogen versus using oil and coal? And how much would we need to decrease the price of hydrogen so that we'll be competitive enough for the switch? That's, 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 that's a very good question. And you know, we've, I've done some math on this. Uh, and in so, it all depends on, the, on your assumptions, right? And what, you're, what the ways in which you're making electricity, you know, et cetera. But if you're just looking at the BTU basis, uh, the price of hydrogen has to be somewhere around 20 to 30 cents per kilogram at the point where it makes sense to burn it. Okay, to, for it to be competitive with with natural gas, and right now, the conventional hydrogen that has a huge CO two footprint is about a dollar per kilogram. Okay, and green hydrogen, and I think in Germany the last I've seen, and probably those prices have gone up since then, were about fifteen to twenty euro per kilogram. Jesus Christ. Green hydrogen, right? So yeah, it's, uh, it's right, yeah. you know, right now it's not, it's not sustainable. We need new technologies 
And we need deployment of those technologies that can reduce that cost by orders of magnitude. And uh, our approach is one of them. Yeah, I see. I see. So how how much would be the final cost per kilogram in 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 your case, the case of your technology or the hydrogen? Like I said, it depends on several things. It depends on the cost of your natural gas. It depends on the cost of electricity you're using. And it depends on how much credit you can get from the coal product. Okay. Oh, I see. I see. But but fundamentally, in many, many, many cases, regardless of scale at which we're set up, we project the the operation to be profitable where we don't get any money for hydrogen whatsoever. Right. Oh, Essentially, it's a, free, it's a free byproduct which is available to decarbonize, you know, whatever industrial operation is located nearby. Okay. But there is, there is I, 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 I just want to make another point, right? So right now we're talking about the hugely abundant natural gas reserves. You know, I mean, really they're abundant around the world, right? United States has really benefited from development of technologies that allow that allow us to lift natural gas at very low costs that hasn't been available before. Okay. And that has supported, you know, the chemical industry, for example, in yeah. the United States over the last 20 years. But uh, there are, beyond that, there are uh, abundant resources of uh, renewable natural gas, not the fossil stuff, right, that's hidden in the ground, but the renewable nat- uh, natural gas that's generated basically by a lot of living organisms. You know, like, I mean, cows, right? Cows see. are yeah. emitter of, uh, yeah. of uh, methane, right? And, and, and there are ways to capture this stuff from landfills and from a farm, basically dung, dung heaps, right? And uh, yeah. fermentation piles, etc. That methane, the carbon in that methane is fundamentally sustainable, right? It, it's not fossil, it's renewable, yeah. which means that if you can pull that carbon out, of that methane, okay? You can use it directly for those chemical processes that I've been talking about. For example, for steel. You can, for steel production, aluminum smelting, right? Now you can use, can utilize the same technologies that have been developed, you know, in the 19th century, right? That are uh, generating a lot of CO2 right now. But if you replace all that carbon feedstocks with renewable carbon, you're really solving the problem fundamentally. Yeah, yeah. Talking and, a little bit about history here, like how you started all of this, like what's the story behind this? Like <laughs> no one's wake up one day and just like, let me, let me use microwaves to make some hydrogen. <laughs> <laughs> like how does right. the story comes up? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 the story is interesting. Actually, it's my our chairman, my partner, who kind of got me into this and uh, he is he actually has an interesting past he's a he is a coal geologist by training right and uh, he discovered one of the largest coal reserves in Canada where nobody thought like in actual in British Columbia nobody thought there was any coal so his group was the one who like went looking for coal in the place for you know, there's no coal. Come on, stop wasting time and money. And they found it. One of the biggest reserves there. And uh, he then he worked for uh, Gulf Oil as a, 
uh, vice president of their coal group, and he was in charge of the research and development for coal. And this was this was back in the 70s and early 80s, right, when the energy crisis was happening. So actually what was going on is that a lot of people were looking for ways to get away from oil and seeing, can we make uh, equivalent fuels from coal? So he was involved in that, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, fast forward to, I guess, about 10 years ago, uh, he's he's an investor in a number of coal projects around the world, right? And he sees sort of the writing on the wall for coal. Uh, Coal is not sustainable as a, you know, energy source, right? It has to be uh, eliminated, which means that all these coal reserves are going to lose all their value because they're not going to be used. So one of the questions was, you know, can we convert coal into something else that has more value and can still be used? And uh, he was looking, he was involved in another large project before for carbon sequestration chemical carbon sequestration as opposed to underground carbon sequestration. And so he knew a lot of people in the national lab framework in the United States, you know, scientists and engineers. And he started basically going to them and asking, like, you know, what can we do with all this coal? And at one of the national labs, they were actually pursuing a DARPA-funded study. So DARPA is the, are the people who brought us internet, right? And they were looking at all sorts of crazy technologies. And one of them was hey, if we microwave coal, we can actually make liquids out of it, right? And those liquids can do all sorts of things. You can turn them into jet fuel, right? And this was before fracking. So United States didn't have the actual reserves of oil that it now has, right? So the Air Force was interested in that, right? Can we make from our domestic coal, can we make fuel for for the jet planes? But it also turns out that uh, those liquids can, can, can support a whole lot of other things, including chemical production and synthetic graphite production for, for electric vehicles and energy storage, etc. So that's how we got involved. He was actually interested in pursuing it. He recruited me to be the technical expert. And I mean, I was, uh, there were no technical experts on microwave conversion of anything at the time, right? <laughs> Which didn't, didn't exist. So, you know, my background is in robotics and computer science and, you know, autonomous vehicles, but hey, yeah. I was just as good as, you know, <laughs> anybody else uh, to, to, to take this on. But, you know, long story short, we found out that, you know, well, there's not much interest in coal, right? And it, coal is actually very difficult to work with. But we have taken that, techno- that technology out of the lab and we have figured out the problems that were fundamental to that technology, but that enabled us to develop our own thing, which we have applied to conversion of natural gas, as opposed oh. to coal or other things. Oh. And the cool thing about that, the natural gas, right, is that the carbon that comes out of the natural gas can actually go to all the same products, okay, that the carbon from coal can except that carbon in the natural gas is a lot more pure, okay? It doesn't have any ash. It doesn't have any metal impurities, which, you know, screw things up uh, for you. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a much more pure feedstock. Yeah. So, what, since, since you started this quest, this journey from transitioning from robotics to, to this, like, 
what was one thing that surprised you? Like that you didn't thought that would be the way it ended up being when you started it, this, this journey? I think what surprised me is how much there is about chemistry, about physics, about processes, you know, on not theoretically, right, but applied stuff that we kind of still don't know, right? And we take a lot of answers for granted because, you know, when you study the stuff in school, you read, right? This, these are the algorithms. These are the steps you need to follow to build something in this domain, right? The people in computer science and electrical engineering and robotics, right? They're, they're actually very lucky because, you know, they don't have that framework of knowledge that has been developed over, you know, 200, 300 years where they have to, that constrains them, right? Yeah. People in artificial intelligence and robotics, right? They're building the future right now, okay? Yeah. Because they're not constrained. And I feel that there's a lot of that that can happen in, you know, in more sort of, I guess you, you can call it deep tech, yeah. right? The more fundamental disciplines, right? That support our lifestyle, right? That provide that infrastructure. There's a lot of space for innovation there. Oh, I see. Do you think that this fresh eyes helped you in this process, like bringing, being from another industry and transitioning and start thinking things in a different way? Yes and no. Yes, because it, um, I really like learning new things, right? And all like, and as you learn, you know, you have this uh, sort of passion of invention. Right. And can we apply it to this? And can we apply it to that? And can we apply it to that? And so now we find ourselves in a situation where we have figured out that we have, you know, cracked the nut, right? You can just like the fire, right? The first person who invented the fire, he didn't know like you could use it for baking and for lighting and for, you know, metal smelting, right? He yeah. just wanted it to be warm, right? And that's what we started out with. We just, you know, we just started applying our you know, little microwave fire to a lot of different things and seeing that it can be applied in a way that people have, have, have not done it before. How, how did you start actually? Like, like how, how one startup a migration like that? Like you, you, did, you didn't have any experience with the microwave thing before, right? It was just like, how did it, you even start doing this type of transition, like reading papers Set up a lab in your home? Like, what, what, what did you start? <laughs> no, that's no, that, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I must confess, right? I haven't a lot of the things I have been doing in my career, yeah. right? I have not done before. I'm yeah. right, and a lot of the things that we have developed, right, in my in my career, like I I spent uh, after I graduated from the university, I stayed in the lab, the robotics institute at uh, Carnegie Mellon. And um, I worked on a number of projects that were not academic, okay? They were applied, but nobody's done them before. To give you an example, you know, nobody has ever made a robot that could crawl through a natural gas pipeline, okay? Without any wires attached to it, with basically lithium-ion batteries. And this was 20 years ago. We were probably the first people to put lithium-ion batteries <laughs> on a robot, especially into a gas pipe, right? And that was communicating wirelessly and sending videos, live videos and stuff like that. Um, and we had to figure it, figure it all from scratch, right? And I mean, my background was in, I mean, it was helpful in figuring it out, but I didn't have a, you know, a project in school that told me 
how to do all these things. And so it was it was easy for me to learn, you know, the uh, the new domain. But as I mentioned, our initial development was actually being done at the national laboratory. Okay, so the transition there was I was trying to understand what those guys were doing. Okay, so I yes, I was both reading the papers, and what's interesting is that a lot of the stuff that uh, is really fundamental to chemical engineering, right? It's all been done in the 19th century. So, like, I can open a lot of the books from yeah. you know, years ago, right? <laughs> Textbooks, and they will tell you like this is how things are made, right? I mean, literally. Yeah. And they're not fancy. They're not using catalysts. They're really all about application of heat to hydrocarbons. And the only in, in innovation that we have brought to that space is how we deliver the energy to those processes that are driven by heat, right? Because we can do it much faster, right? And get to much higher temperatures, you know, we get a lot of uh, efficiencies over how, how they used to be, how that stuff used to get done. And for you guys, what what do you think is like the biggest challenge that you still have? Like, what's the biggest challenge that you are facing right now, and and for for moving forward? Oh, right now, just uh, execution. You know that we we you know we know exactly what needs to get needs to get done. It's just keeping our eye on the price and uh, scaling it. Div, you know, deploying a commercial commercial unit. That's uh, that's all we need to do. One of the challenges is, you know, we are, uh, what's the right word, bootstrapped right now, right? Okay. So we get a lot of our funding from projects that we do with the Department of Energy and, you know, other folks, right? Because yeah. we have the best microwave system in its class, right? So people who are now getting interested in microwave chemistry, they will come to us and be like, hey, can, you know, do you want to be on the project? They want yeah. to, uh, to run experiments. And so that really distracts us, you know, from yeah. the core hey, let's get this thing commercial. And, and that's, you, that's guys, you guys would sell to other companies or do you guys intend to operate? That's a great question. We've, we've looked into it and it doesn't make sense for us to operate because it's applicable to a lot of industries, right? And I've just described several scenarios. So our strategy is to find kind of key first adopters in each industry yeah. and work with them. Okay. Yeah, I and think it makes sense as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what I have learned is, you know, there are a lot of deep, like at a high level, everything looks easy and straightforward, right? But there is a lot of detail that is actually important, right? And these multiple steps of the industrial chain, right? And we're never going to be able to master all of them. So yeah. it makes sense to work with good partners. Will yeah, and focus yeah. on execution of one crucial. Yeah. yeah, I always think about that about this the messiness of dealing with with atoms instead of of bytes. It's I am a, a programmer by trade, so it's it's always messy when we start dealing with with atoms instead of of, of just bits and bytes. It's just like it's, exactly. it's not it's not a trivial difference. It's really big difference. It's a lot of details and details and details involved in that. Another question that I, that, that I have for you is that, so we have the, the market right now for hydrogen, right? Like how, how much we're talking about? I think it's like 100 billion, 90 billion, something uh, around that? I, I mean, I can tell you in metric tons per year, yeah. it's 100, 100 million metric tons per year 
now. Um, yeah. and I frankly don't know what it, what it translates in terms of money, right? Because, yeah. but it's roughly a dollar per kilogram of industrial hydrogen. The green hydrogen, truly green hydrogen that has no CO2 emissions is a very tiny market. I, you yeah. know, practically negligible. And what applications could we think about in a future where hydrogen would be cheap? Because for a lot of things that there's, there's a lot of new things that are, that are, that open up when you get something that used to be expensive and make it really, really cheap. And then you can do other stuff that was not possible before. Like, do you think about anything like that? So, I mean, in my opinion, right? Well, a lot of people are excited about hydrogen cars. Yeah. So yeah, there is a question for you. You know, are hydrogen cars actually going to be viable once hydrogen become, you know, green hydrogen becomes ubiquitous, right? Because there's natural gas everywhere. There is electricity everywhere. We can actually set up a system that will make hydrogen on demand whenever a car drives up directly at the, you know, at the station. But I don't know if um, maybe the electric vehicles have won, right? That's it. I don't know that. So we focus on industrial decarbonization. And right now, you can take the hydrogen that we make, basically blend it into a stream of natural gas and immediately get sustainability wins, right? And sustainability and, you know, reducing CO2, even by, you know, 10, 20%. Is so yeah, a big change, yeah. Yeah, and we and 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 we can apply that, you know, uh, very very quickly. The things that make me excited is that our technology can be adapted, you know, pretty directly from to other carbon products. Okay, so if we have actually just a few months ago we have demonstrated the entire pathway from a methane molecule, right, which is a gas, to yeah. synthetic graphite. You know, which is a very highly ordered solid material, right? And that's, yeah. uh, I don't think anybody has done that before. But yeah. we have demonstrated that A, it's possible, and B, very likely it will be economically viable. So you can think of it as we have natural gas everywhere. You can have renewable natural gas. We can make solid carbon products, not just for the, you know, for tires or for, you know, uh, plastic. Mm-hmm. supply chain you could like yeah. be involved in other steps of the huge carbon supply chain it's a lot of other carbon derivative materials that you could be producing yeah. using that, a lot that of same technology on this exactly. interesting. and uh, and yeah. plastics yeah that's the other that's the other thing the plastics that right now come from basically cracking of you know larger hydrocarbons using a lot of energy we can you we can adapt our microwave technology directly toward that. So, uh, so you'd, be, you, you'd be creating the plastics from the natural gas using that the same type of pipeline thing? Uh, correct. Uh, essentially, you will be making... So a lot of plastic is is uh, polyethylene, right? For example, yeah. polyethylene. Polyethylene means it's a polymer of ethylene. And ethylene is has two carbon atoms, okay? And four, and four hydrogen atoms. And we can convert methane into ethylene very directly right now. So we can replace the furnace, again, use the same principle. We don't build a whole new plant from scratch, although you can, especially at smaller scale. 
but we can replace the existing furnaces, which burn a lot of natural gas, make a lot of CO2, and retrofit existing plants with these microwave units, making chemicals, and we have a byproduct of hydrogen, which can go to decarbonization of other industries. If you don't need to actually contact with the pipes, pipes and you are just heating directly the, the gas with, with, the, with your microwaves, could the, mm -hmm. same, the same plant, let's say, that you build in the future work for any of these types of things? Like you could do the, the natural gas to, to black carbon and the natural gas to plastics in the same plant? Or would you need to have specific setups for the different types of... of, of um, the, core, the core unit is the same. The implementation, especially immediately downstream of where we you know, inject the energy into the gas has to be different. So you wouldn't be able to just, you know, start making, you know, carbon black and on the fly say, I'm gonna, I want to make <laughs> chemicals. Yeah. I don't think that's, that's viable. Okay. But um, yeah, they're close enough. Uh, the key, yeah. the key components are the microwaves and the way we make them interact with the gas flow. Yeah. Because I was thinking about like, if a lot of the pieces are the same, you can get like a better economy of scale because you're going to produce in a lot of the same pieces, even yeah, though yeah, exactly. for different types of customers. Exactly. So what we envision is having a factory that makes chemical plants, yeah. like in, 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 you know, in modules. And there would be uh, differences, you know, in the configuration of the module itself, but they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be huge. We were talking earlier about how, like, having, like, instead of a huge plant, having smaller plants and doing something more distributed. When we talk about small, what small we're talking about here, like, what's a small plant would, would look like? It's, uh, I mean, think about one or two containers, like standard okay. containers, okay. Uh, okay. depending on the configuration, you know, you need more or less space. And uh, that would, the plant like that would make a, a thousand kilos, basically a ton of hydrogen per day. Okay. And, and we're looking at three to five million dollars in uh, cost to have to, to manufacture to and install this thing. Yeah. Which is, by the way, you know, we're not the only ones who are looking at, we're developing natural gas, what they call natural gas pyrolysis, basically breakdown by heating. We're, as far as I know, we're the only ones who are making uh, the technical uh, solutions, you know, going in this direction using using microwaves. But, uh, you know, more conventional methods of natural gas pyrolysis, they're about two to three times costlier on capital basis. Got it. We are getting to, to the end, and there's some questions that I always make at the end. So the first one is that, do you have... Any advice for someone that's starting right now a deep tech company? That's a great question. Make as many friends as you can in the industry and in the research community. That's very important. That's, it's very important for you to have a support group and uh, people who will you know, help you and will give you advice. And recommend us a book that you, that you like. Uh, That's a great, great question. I actually have several, but <laughs> one that comes to mind is uh, Surely You're Choking, Mr. Mr. Feynman. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, yeah. And 
um, I mean, it's it's entertaining read, right? Yeah. But what's uh, what was really important for me is his discussion of Feynman's discussion of how he thought about problems, how he approached them, right, and how like what it meant to learn physics, right? Not and actually, I think you know, since you're in Brazil, I think he had a chapter about his experience yeah. in the Brazil university yeah. right and that yeah. was very eye-opening to me and i've been trying yeah. to kind of understand uh the material that i'm you know that i'm faced with and i'm learning you yeah. know fundamentally rather than learn the words or formulas yeah how to not just repeat things and actually learning things yeah it was a great book it's one of my favorites as well it's 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 pretty inspiring when, when you read it like and fun as well it's inspiring and fun yeah He seems to be a, he probably was a really fun guy to be around. <laughs> uh, there are uh, varying opinions on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone has uh, has the, you know, right sides and the dark sides. But yeah. I, take the book, I take the book at face value. And yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. And I reread it every couple of years. Oh, this, this is pretty cool. Any other book recommendations besides that? You know, if you if if you if you ask me, uh, if you, yeah, if you ask me in advance, hey, this is the question I'm going to ask you. I would uh, I would I would give you some recommendations, but I'm not that great at you know sort of spontaneous spontaneous, <laughs> spontaneous spontaneous recommendations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of there's a lot of great books out there. Definitely, the final one is, is is. Have you read the the, the follow up of that one? There's another one. There are there's like uh, six easy pieces, I think, but those are from. Uh, I don't think it's a follow up. Um, I think it's more like a condensed version of his of his lectures on physics, um, which is another you know book on my shelf um, that yeah. I practice you know, frequently. Yeah, um, no. mm -hmm. I think there's there is one. I, I am not. I don't remember the name anymore. But I think there's a follow up. It follows a little bit through the the challenger. Right, right, right. Period right. of time, uh, mm -hmm. but it's called "What do you care what other people think?" Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean that's that's that that's 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 a great follow up uh, book as well. And I mean, frankly, I have to say that even before I read that book, I really didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which is not which is not necessarily an advice I would I would give anyone. Uh, because, like I said again, support is very yeah. important. You want to, yeah. you want, you want, you want, yeah. you want to know what people think. Yeah, sure. You have to make a choice of whether it's a, you know, whether their opinion is valuable. Yeah. So thank you very much for your time. It was like a, a blast talking to you, man. It was really, really fun. I hope that in in the future we talk again to see how the things are going. Of I each yes. Absolutely. I hope the next time we talk, I'll be able to give you uh, this uh, a very, very big and impressive update on our yeah. on our progress. Um, and you know, we're on a yeah. uh, we're on a great trajectory right now, and we have momentum. So we just have yeah. to keep. Uh, I'll be rooting for for your success. If you guys can do can pull it off, it'll be a, a great win for climate change. It's a, it's a really important thing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.